Hello, I'm Sean McDonald, and you're listening to Pleathered. This episode is unlike any other that I've ever done, but I've loved every second of making it. Like every episode, it's written, recorded, and produced by me. So therefore, it's seen through my own eyes, and it's a subject that I knew nothing about. Now, I've put together three separate interviews where I aim to find out more about what it's really like to live with HIV and about the groundbreaking new treatment that Scotland is the first country in the world to offer. So to explain the new treatment, the Scottish Medicines Consortium, or the SMC for short, have announced that for the first time, people who are living with HIV in Scotland will have the option of accessing a complete long-acting injection administered once every two months instead of taking regular daily oral tablets. Now, to people like me, uninformed and with no knowledge of the subject of it all, that didn't really mean anything, to be honest. Tablets, injection, it's all the same thing, really. Well, the answer is it's not, and you'll hear why. Now, the realities and specifics of HIV in general is just something that I did not know until I started preparing for this and spoke to my three guests. Now, those guests are two men, Brian and David, who've been living with the virus for quite some time and from Dr. Necker Nicolo. Now, they each gave me a personalised account of their own lives, the world around them, their fears, their hopes, the lessons, the things that they've learned. And it's really opened my eyes. And there's a lot of stigma and a lack of knowledge and information on the subject. And I'm glad that I had these chats because I really did learn a lot. The first up is my conversation with Brian West. He's age 63 and he's from Edinburgh. Now, Brian was diagnosed in 1984 while in Sydney and, in his own words, returned to Scotland to die. Now that thankfully didn't happen and he's gone on to contribute to the Scottish HIV community on a phenomenal scale. As always, if you enjoy this episode, then share it with someone. Cheers. When I was growing up, it was um, rather unusual to come out as gay, for one thing. Uh, there wasn't uh, an awful lot happening but it was just bursting out bursting out on the scene in Edinburgh and Glasgow and in London and places like that uh, um, Prime Minister was a very newly elected Margaret Thatcher so it is mm-hmm. a long time ago uh, and just as we were all beginning to enjoy ourselves along came this virus you know we've still got a long way to go in terms of you know equality and and that type of thing what was it like back then? Did Was there a feeling of sort of oppression or a sort of disapproval? And did the newly elected Margaret Thatcher, did she sort of compound that feeling of sort of isolation and, and disapproval that did seem to permeate through society at that point? Yeah, certainly when we're talking about both being gay and being HIV positive, Margaret Thatcher did not come to power and make life easier for us. Mm. Uh, she passed certain pieces of legislation Clause 28 or Clause 2A, as it was called here, that made them, that made actually the, to be perfectly honest, very decent discussion about what being lesbian or gay meant at school illegal. Um, uh, Certainly when I was young, the age of consent was 21. So, and there was a debate in Parliament on whether to uh, lower it to 18, far less 16. So there was a, there was an environment that was anti-gay and it did not and we had no rights there were no you nowadays we have rights that say you can't discriminate against us because we're because i'm a gay man nowadays we have rights that say you can't discriminate against us because we're living with hiv none of those exist then 
and the political atmosphere was at times toxic. Mm-hmm. Like, do you do you have any sort of um, theory or, or sort of reasoning as to why the government did that? Because I think anybody, you know, younger people listening now will find that really unimaginable. But it wasn't actually that long ago. It's in very recent memory. I mean, first of all, how how do you get away with that? And did did they have like a political motivation for it, or was it just through pure badness? Like, or was it a mixture? I I think um, it's very difficult to answer that question. Certainly, from a lot of people's perspective, she was not popular in Scotland. Let's be perfectly honest. She just didn't care about certain groups of people. And I'll say, you know, gay men or people living with HIV were no different from an awful lot of other people who were cast on the heap during that. Mm-hmm. Time, uh, we weren't really um, part of her political power base, so we did not matter. We yeah. weren't going to vote for her; that was for sure. So, at the end of the day, we were inconsequential. And she had a, an agenda which was um, certainly right wing, and certainly she would call it an individualist agenda. But it was an individualist agenda with a very strict moral code attached to it. And it didn't matter that some of her own ministers were breaking that moral code. I was, yeah, I was just about to say there was there was so many involved in in scandal and stuff, and it just makes you wonder. I say scandal, you know, things that were represented as being scandalous, but were in fact just kind of normal human nature, as we're kind of discussing. But it it makes you wonder what type of person you have to be to persecute the the very type of person that that you are, or somebody who's partaken in the things that you regularly do. Um, it's funny that you say there the. Um, about Margaret Thatcher and the government just didn't care about people. And you look at the government today and you think the apple certainly does not fall far from the tree, does it? Um, with um, we'll, we'll talk kind of about your your diagnosis and stuff or how how you started to, or how you realised that you were kind of becoming unwell, if you don't mind. So, I mean, well, first of all, when did the community or when did the world start to become aware that there was some sort of issue? And what was that like? Because I suppose to begin with, nobody would have had a clue, like you know, what was going on or what this this disease was. I I would I, mean, I can give you the exact year, but around about eighty two, eighty three, it became obvious that there was this new disease on the block, mm-hmm. and it was affecting certain groups of people. For a while, it was called GRID, gay related immune deficiency. Mm-hmm. Then it became uh, HIV or AIDS, if you were becoming ill, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Um, and it became obvious it wasn't just uh, gay men. They just happened to be the, the ones who were the, the first affected by it in the United States. And, of course, from the United States, there was lots of planes flying back and forth to uh, the United Kingdom and Europe and everywhere. So it very quickly transferred over here. And mm. people very quickly caught it. And we didn't even at the time know what you would do to prevent it. Because if you think back to me being young, uh, I didn't know what a condom was. I didn't need a condom. I wasn't going to get a man pregnant. So a mm. condom was not in there as part of a of a yeah. kind of sex education. So later on, we discovered there were things that we could do to help prevent tran- transmit the illness. But also by that time, there was a huge number of people affected. And the thing that was very obvious very early on is that most people that became infected with HIV 
would go on and develop serious illnesses basically because their immune system was taking a dive downwards. And then eventually uh, they would die. And that was really what I thought I was heading to. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been work. I was diagnosed with HIV in Sydney. I was working in Sydney at the time, Australia, came back. Um, event first to London and then eventually came back to my home city, Edinburgh, um, effectively to die. I didn't come back here to live. I came back here to die. But my story took a sudden twist, as it happened with a lot of other people, because um, they developed drugs that could help to start treat uh, HIV, try and suppress the virus and uh, allow the immune system to recover and I just happened to get to the stage where I was really quite ill with all sorts of um, infections just at the time that those drugs came along in 1994 or 1995. God, like, to hear hear somebody actually describing that sort of scenario and timeline is, like, really, that's really taking me aback. I think, like, my knowledge of the subject as a whole is like very checkered it's like a sort of jigsaw where a load of pieces missing and i think then when you only have wee bits of information and knowledge you you maybe don't realize the the severe impact that it can have on the life you know the life of one person but not just you then all your friends your family you know people that are sort of in your circles and then how many of those stories that there are I mean, not. I don't mean to be insensitive or prod on something that's obviously quite um, probably. I'd imagine to this day quite a raw topic. But how how does that feel to think? Yeah, this is me. Like I'm, you know, I'm basically just preparing to die. How do you even begin to to wrestle with that sort of realization? To a certain extent, you don't have any choice. Uh, mm. And it's really funny because one of the repercussions of this is that for a while I was assuming I was going to die before my parents. And that's mm. now not happened. My mother died a few years ago of cancer. My dad is 95 years old. He has dementia. He's not in a particularly good place. So to a certain extent, when you're confronted with it, you have to deal with it. Mm. And most of my friends that I knew in the mid-80s are dead. And they were my age. So they died in the late 20s and the 30s. And I've only got a few still alive. And the few that are still alive are the ones who weren't infected with HIV. I'm talking about gay men here. Mm -hmm. And the ones who were like me, fortunate enough to just live long enough to see these drugs start to come through. But Mm -hmm. it was, um, at the end of the day, when you're confronted with an illness that's going to kill you, you don't actually have a choice. And I always see the media sometimes talk about someone bravely fighting against something. Yeah, I find the use of that word brave very strange because if you had given me the choice in 1985-86 to run like hell in the opposite direction away from <laughs> it, that is exactly what I would have done. I had yeah. no choice. I wasn't being brave. I just had to try and deal with it because that was the reality. Yeah, I get. I, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing at something so 
so serious, but it's it's a good point. I suppose it just points to the adaptability of humans that, that you know, whatever situation you find yourself in, you eventually do have to just press on because it's not as if, as you say, you've got the choice to go, eh, by the way, lads, I think I'll just give this HIV thing a miss if you don't mind. Like it's, you know, you're, you're saddled with it. I mean, if you, bring it, if you bring it up to date, if someone had turned around to you two years ago and said, you know, next year you're going to be going into lockdown, you're not going to be doing X, Y, and Z, you're not getting out, would you have believed them? Absolutely not. I wouldn't have. And did we have any choice? No, we didn't. You did know, it's we, funny. Did we face up to it bravely or did we just have no bloody choice? Yeah, mine was a fluctuation of bravery and absolute capitulation when I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm, I'm finished. And then it's like, well, guess what, we man? You have fucking, you are doing it. You've not got a choice because everything's shut. Um, you know, generations are funny there as well because my dad cracked a, cracked a joke very early on when he was still a bit better than he is now. And I'm talking about May last year. He turned around and said, I don't know what people are complaining about so much. He says, it's not like the Second World War. We don't have food rationing, apart from those silly fools buying too many toilet rolls at the beginning. And you don't have to worry about bombs dropping on your head either. And I thought, well, that kind of puts it in context too. I never thought about it that way. I suppose. Anyway. Aye. Um, with, so we get to kind of watershed point then for you around about 94, these drugs become available. Was that, did that feel like a, how much of a reprieve did that feel? Because, you know, you feel like you're, 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 you're staring into an abyss and the abyss is staring right back at you in terms of what is, seems to be an inevitable death sentence. And then all of a sudden there's this new possibility. It's a turning point. It's a turning point because we heard about them coming along in 1994. I started on these drugs in December 1995, but at the time, we did not know that this was going to be an effective long-term treatment. We didn't know if we were just buying ourselves some time mm. because there had been lots of treatments to help some of the illnesses we were suffering from as a consequence of HIV, and some of those treatments were pretty bloody awful, to be perfectly honest. In fact, hated some of them. But... Once the drugs came along, you felt there was a possibility. So you started taking them. The only trouble is these early drugs were uh, pretty toxic things. You were taking six to eight drugs. I was taking six to eight drugs three times a day. I had to, There were dietary requirements. They gave me chronic diarrhea. I needed to know how to get myself to every kind of toilet anywhere on the way up from Leith to the Edinburgh City Centre, you know, I needed to work out how to get there. And they were just, they also had some really bad side effects. So I remember thinking at the time, I hope we can do better than this at some point. So, but that was a period we had to go through, you know, they had mm. limited numbers of drugs. If you, you either took them or you died. So again, mm -hmm. nothing brave going on there. I just took them. Mm -hmm. With, um with those like side effects and stuff, was there ever a point where you thought, you know, this is no way to live? Or were you just steadfast and thinking, I want to get as far along as I can? Because I think you could be forgiven. You know, you talk about quality versus quantity. And if the quality of your life is, is impacted so much, it may um, cause you to sort of view survival, I suppose, in a different light. Well, do you know where... Um I didn't feel that way. I know that some people did feel at some point, is this worth it? But mm -hmm. when I was probably quite well off 
and where basically Edinburgh and Glasgow had really good volunteer, voluntary support services and also very good clinical services for HIV. There was a there was a voluntary service, Waverly Care and Solas in Edinburgh. You had uh, voluntary services now run by T- Terms Higgins Trust in Glasgow, etc. And um, so at the end of the day, when you went along to these services, you could listen and you could hear that there were other drugs coming through. So mm. in my mind, you know, was this a long-term solution? No, it wasn't. It was there something better, you know, around the corner then yes there was but I think for some people it did seem like you know I just can't carry on like this this is not um this is this is not quality of life this is just surviving but I didn't feel that way mainly because I thought something better is on the horizon Mm. yeah that makes complete sense you know from there's obviously the, there's the physical battle and you know that that you're having to contend with and you know, everything that comes along with that. But there's also then the sort of social um, ramifications and you know dealing with that stigma and stuff. And how just you know how was that back then? Because you know even until recently, um, you know what, what were the implications for you from a social perspective? Oh, I mean, there still is stigma, and you see even until recently. It, it, it stigma's still there. It's always mm. at various degrees. And one of the ways you deal with it, certainly from my perspective, was being cautious at first about who I told. Mm-hmm. You know, at first I told my close friends and then a few more, uh, then a couple of members of my family. But, you know, along the way I lost one good friend, and as far as I'm concerned, he was not a good friend because he yeah. was just not helpful at all. Um, but most of my friends came through, um, but the stigma is still there, and you could tell it, you know, straight away because people would sometimes, even on the in the gay bars, if you'd go out in Bennett's in Glasgow, or if you'd go out in in CC Blooms in Edinburgh, people would <laughs> turn around and say, "Well, that one's HIV positive," and we're talking about gay men here. We're not talking mm-hmm. about members of the public, and there was such a the stigma is also sometimes driven by ignorance. There was that ignorance that people thought they might be able to catch it from you. And, and I mean, they weren't going to catch it from me. I mean, mm-hmm. nowadays, nobody's going to catch it from me anyway because if you are what's called undetectable, basically if the drugs are working so well that they can't find any virus in your bloodstream, then you're untransmittable. So, and that's a big public campaign now, U equals U, undetectable equals untransmissible. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, that's not a message that's out there publicly. So some of the stigma is driven by fear. Yeah. And some of the stigma is also driven by the fact that you've got it because you did a naughty sexual act, or you got it because you injected drugs, or you got it because you're a commercial sex worker, or something else. You got it because of your own fault kind of thing. Mm. And the reality is we all get all kinds of diseases and we're not responsible for how we catch them, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also the, um, I think, the the broad misunderstanding that it is just something within the gay community. But, I mean, this is a very isolated example, but one very um, prominent and famous example of someone who had it, who wasn't gay was the uh the american rapper easy e 
and he died, yeah. I think, in the early 90s. And that was like a re- probably one of the ones that would, well, would that have been a watershed moment and people realizing that, hold on a minute, you know, this is, this is just something that is kind of transmissible through the human race in general? I think there's been several watershed moments, but there again, people always try and turn it round and say, oh, you must have done something wrong yourself. The reality yeah. is it's a bloodborne virus and it's a sexually transmittable virus. Um, so people can catch it. Mm-hmm. If you have sex, you can catch it. If, if, you, if, uh, if you're in contact with contaminated blood products, you can catch it as well. And it was for a while, certainly in, in the continent of Africa. You had yeah. real issues with the mother-to-child transmission as well. So God. Uh, that was um, you know, children being born because the mothers were living with HIV. So, I mean, I, I think there have been several periods where you could say you notice that there are people catching it that you don't expect to catch it. But yeah. also there are other people out there who still are absolutely surprised that they have caught it. I've got a friend who... I met who did not expect at all to have caught HIV. She's a heterosexual white woman, so she didn't necessarily felt that she fit, fitted any of the the boxes. But as mm-hmm. it turns out, her husband was a oil rig worker who, although he maybe spends a lot of time working in the North Sea, is off to Brazil. And um, of course, when he was in Brazil, he had been using commercial sex workers. So. That's how she got it. So, oh, and she did God. not, and she took a long time to find to get the diagnosis because the doctors looking at her thought, "You're not going to have HIV. You're yeah. not in that category." I think um, if this was a more private conversation or a different type of podcast episode, I may have a far more colourful reaction to the husband there. I mean, that is, I think my face kind of says, "Oh, there, that's horrendous." That. <laughs> Well, you say that horrendous. Do you know what she did? She took him back. What? Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yep. God. That's, that's, she's an angel, but uh, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Fair play. A very forgiving person. Um, through through your life, you know, you've been you've become involved in you know a multitude of you know as a campaign and information groups, and you you know you do a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Talk me through some of that, if you don't mind, and just kind of what prompted you to do that, because it is a, it's a lot of a workload to take on. I would imagine that many people would probably go, "Wow, I've got enough on my plate here." You know, I'm dealing with this myself without having to go and take on the burden of, of so many other people. Or, or was it just were you motivated to, you know, to try and just do as much as you can to help others that are in your position? Mixed with two things, a few things actually. For one thing. I had time on my hands because for a while I was just, um, I had to stop work. So I just did some voluntary work at one of mm-hmm. the shopping centres in Edinburgh, Solas. And uh, I, I kind of learned there that sometimes it's really helpful to learn from somebody else who's in the same position as you. Mm-hmm. It's called kind of peer group ed- education. And I was able to talk to people about what the issues were so if someone was newly diagnosed, I would say, look, don't panic. You're not going to die tomorrow. And it really helped to talk to someone living in a similar situation to you. And in a way, I felt that I could do something decent. And I also felt better in myself for doing that. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly, 
that was even in the early years, but once the antiretrovirals came along, the drugs that treat HIV came along, I really felt I wanted to go out and talk about them because a lot of people were saying, you know, should I be going on drugs for the rest of my life? You know, there's always a cynicism about the fact that pharmaceutical companies can come through very quickly with something and say, well, is this really, is this, is this really for me? So I felt kind of duty bound to do something about that and go in. And I enjoyed it. That's the other thing. I didn't enjoy it. I enjoyed talking to people and mm-hmm. saying, this is what uh, the situation is at the moment. This is where you can be. So I actually enjoyed helping to run work and support groups for people mm-hmm. living with HIV, mixed groups in Edinburgh, because you had IV drug users, you had women who were infected by HIV. And then laterally, um, uh, uh, you had the the black community in Scotland in fact, uh, who were affected as well. So at the end of the day, I actually enjoyed it because you felt you could share your information and mm-hmm. impart some knowledge. Does, does there then develop or, or does that then generate a sense of community across quite a broad spectrum of, because you've listed a lot of groups there that, you know, if you're looking at them just from purely surface level, you're like, none of these groups have any connection to each other, um, you know, in the broadest sense. The cafe at Solas in Edinburgh was really funny because there is nowhere else in Edinburgh that you would have a group of gay men sitting next to a group of uh, drug users from from uh, Craig Miller or Pilton or something like that. And it happened. Yeah. And some of the conversations were um, interesting, to say the least. <laughs> and I remember at one point there was a, a government benefits integrity project going on that was about getting people back to work. And everybody was getting interviewed if you were getting benefits of any sort. And one of the guys who uh, lived in uh, Nidri in Edinburgh turned around and said, well, it's all right we're going back to work, but I haven't done any breaking and entry for a couple of years or so. <laughs> I don't think that's what they had in mind. <laughs> a wee bit, he's a wee bit rusty. You know, obviously yeah. in, in some generally sad circumstances, but there's something really nice about that sort of affinity that these people have got with each other and yeah from from completely different backgrounds and some are breaking and entering and some are not um with the you know the development and in, in the you know the new drug that's soon about to become available can you because you'll be far more um informative than i could possibly be can you give me a wee bit of information on the drug that is being introduced and the impact and that that is going to have in in people's lives yeah, I mean, the reality is drugs have improved massively this century. And we've got to the stage where they don't have the side effects that they used to have. Mm-hmm. And also, um, sometimes you're taking drugs once a day as opposed to three times a day. And that's a huge improvement. That is a huge improvement. But not, you know, it's like every other illness. Not every drug suits one person. And the wonderful thing about these new long-acting injectables that have just been uh, approved by the Scottish Medicines Consortium is that you can just go along and get an injection once every two months. Mm. And there's two really good things about that. It actually gives people more choice, and it also shows that we're still innovating. We're still innovating because this is the beginning. Later on, it might be three-monthly injectable. And to put it in context, for some people, that could make a huge difference. If there's a stigma that you feel within your community at being seen at having you know, bottles and packets of drugs sitting around you and people saying, what are these drugs for? 
if you can just go along to the clinic once every two months, that stigma is removed to all intents. Yeah. And also, um, you don't have to remember. I, I take my pills once a day, but I have to remember to take my pills every single day. I can't not take them. It's not like mm -hmm. I can just say I'm not bothered today. So I think that the, the injectables that are coming along are a brilliant kind of, you know, a, bit, a, a brilliant development going forward because I'm sure it will help for lots of people in the future. And one group of people that aren't talked about often enough are commercial sex workers because mm. they really don't want to be seen with, uh, with necessarily want to be seen with, with drugs on them, uh, antiretroviral drugs on them. So they can now actually go along and get shot and be very, very safe. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one group that I think could be very good for this new development. Yeah, it's it's um, it's certainly been an eye opener. The conversation, I suppose, the thing that I would hope for is that the um, the developments just continue to to speed up and accelerate. You know, that way the sort of snowball effect. But um, it certainly seems like in general we've come a long way. Um, thank you very much, you know, for having this conversation with me, for being so, you know, so open, so generous with your time and your your sort of memory of things. It's um, yeah. It's, well, it's funny you should say the memory there because one of the other things that I was thinking about watching my father, who can't remember how to take his pills, yeah. I thought, you know, there is uh, there is a generation of people living with HIV who are growing older. We might need these injections later on because we mm. might be at the stage where we can't remember to take our, our pills <laughs> anymore because we've got early stage dementia or something. So there's probably groups of people for whom these uh, injectables are going to be uh, an absolutely brilliant development. Yeah. God, I never thought of that. Coming out of a clinic with your arm sore and going, I've got an injection, but I can't even remember what it was for. But oh, well, that's it. My, <laughs> my arm hurts. I'm not sure why I've got it. Right, uh, Brian, thank you. For this, it's um, it's been great. It's been a real a real eye opener, and I'm, I'm hoping people take um something from this conversation and the others that will be littered throughout this episode. With you, thanks very much. Bye bye. Magic. Cheers, Brian. Blethered is going to be live with a very special surprise guest at St Luke's in Glasgow on Friday the 26th of November. It's going to be a great night, a good conversation and plenty of laughs. The link to buy tickets is in the episode notes or just search for Blethered Live at St Luke's. Next up is David Law, aged 57 and also from Edinburgh. He was diagnosed in 1997 and understandably struggled to come to terms with it or to share his status with anybody, even his own mum, for the first year. Now that gave me a really strong sense of how life-changing an HIV diagnosis must be for somebody receiving that news. Now, David has subsequently lived a full life, climbing 20 hills, writing books and sharing his story so that others can take comfort and encouragement from it. Gone are the days of HIV being a death sentence and David is a strong example of that. Am I right in saying it's like you you just started suffering from kind of severe exhaustion and you had like a was it a sort of mark in your face which kind of raised alarm bells for you? Um, if you want to kind of set the period of my diagnosis, I'm sure you saw the recent um, Russell T Davis's these It's a Sin on Channel Four, which goes right back to that era. That is absolutely about the time that I was um, beginning to suspect that I might kind of have HIV and so on. 
like um, one of the characters, I think you've had fat Ollie Alexander's character in the TV series. At one point, I think he does this thing of choosing not to test, basically, which is something people did years back, kind of at the uh, in the 19, beginning of the 19, late 80s, beginning of the 90s and so on, because there were no treatments mm -hmm. available. So people kind of thought, well, I'll just, it may be better not to know because if I know, I'll worry about it kind of thing. But mm -hmm. as I say, yeah, yeah. And um, I began, as I say, to get symptoms that I couldn't really ignore any longer. Um, I was feeling much tired than a 33-year-old should ever feel. I also had this kind of mark on my face that wasn't going away, basically. So eventually with my then partner and brother hung over on a Monday morning, we dragged ourselves off on the bus up to the um, uh, what was then the GUM clinic, stands for Genital Urinary Medicine Clinic, uh, up at Lauriston Place in Edinburgh. And um, it was very traumatic. We sat in there with a young doctor, um, and I kind of pointed at my face, and I said, is this Carposi sarcoma? Carposi sarcoma was a kind of rare form of skin cancer. You never see it anymore because of modern treatments. But people, mm -hmm. when they became ill with AIDS rather than HIV, would get it on their faces and on their bodies. So I pointed to the mark on my face, and the doctor said, well, really, the only reliable way to see what this is is to have an HIV blood test. So back then, and it's a sign of how far things have moved on, Today, you can get an HIV test in five minutes and get the result back in five minutes. Back then, this is March 1997, we're talking, to get a test, the quickest test they had, they would took my blood, so that would have been about 10 o'clock in the morning, and we had to come back at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So um, mm -hmm. you can begin to imagine how stressful that was, sitting in the flat on your sofa, worrying about what was going to happen in the afternoon. Um, we back back in the afternoon, and I was living down in Leith then, and it was quite a long bus journey. Went back in the afternoon, and um, in fact, both me and my partner had a, had had the test. He was negative, I was positive. I had a CD four count of one hundred and sixty eight. A normal one for somebody like you, health person like you, would be eight hundred to a thousand, um, and a very very high viral load. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was very traumatic in the end. We were sent away from the hospital, uh, clutching a prescription for Valium. Um, and uh, it was really a very good, difficult time. On the plus side of that, I was lucky. This was 1997. A year earlier in 1996, there had been what's known as the protease moment, which was when doctors discovered they developed various anti-HIV drugs but the protease moment was when they realized that if you gave three of these drugs to the patient all at the same time, the drugs suddenly worked, viral load began to drop, CD4 count increased. If you remember the um, lead singer of the old rock band Queen, Freddie Mercury, who died of AIDS, he was actually given, he had so much money he could get experimental drugs, but his doctors only gave them to him one at a time. If they'd given them to him altogether, he'd probably still be with us today as an old wrinkly rocker. Oh, man, that's that's a sad, that's a real sad one. It's kind of so close yet so far. 
I'm working on another project, just kind of to go off on a tangent, but working on another project just now, and it's um, about cancer me- like treatments and medicine. And there's um, it's really frustrating as well that the people with all the money are the ones who, who can kind of probably outlive everybody. So it's like there is a <laughs> infuriatingly like this an inextricable link between money and and your life being worth worth a bit more. Um, yeah. I mean, I've got a whole load of questions, like sort of just listening to well, that. Just fire, fire, fire away, Sean. I mean, first of all, the, the trauma and, and the panic and the sort of worry is is really unimaginable. At what point did that start to kind of go away for you? Was it when you realised that, okay, you know, I can survive, there are treatments and they are always sort of evolving? Um, I was... I was very lucky and we got a great service from the genital urinary medicine clinic. They refer me to a, a, a clinical psychologist. So I saw her every week and we did work on uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. It was, and it was really all about dealing with this sort of anxiety and mm-hmm. so on. Because today, anti-HIV drugs are well proven. We know they'll keep you alive and so on. But back then, they were very new and you weren't actually sure whether they would continue to work or whatever. I was also mm. suffering from, as I say, this form of AIDS-related cancer, so I had to get chemotherapy. I was worried about that. But to get to your question, I think the um, the two events, this is 1997, and the two events that made me realize I was kind of still in the game was, um, first of all, there was the there was the general election and the victory of new labor. But even more than that, I think it was the year that Princess Diana died in the car crash kind of mm. thing, you know, and then I kind of thought, well, I'm kind of still here, you know, and um, as I say, so probably it was it was about six months and then things kind of got back to normal and so on. Yeah. the uh, you, I might correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of took a while to, to start telling people, like your mum, maybe after like one year and sort of others, is that just real because of the sort of misunderstanding or like the stigma that surrounded and I suppose still continues to surround the subject? Yes. I mean, one of the problems that still surrounds HIV today is um, the stigma, as you say. And I think even today, people find it very difficult to tell parents and relatives that they've got HIV. And I think that's probably because of the way it's transmitted, because it's a sexually transmitted thing. If you normally mm-hmm. got sexually transmitted disease, like gonorrhea or something, you would take yourself off to the clinic. And I would think you probably, you might tell your best mate about it or whatever, but you'd probably keep it quite quiet. And um, as I say, back then, I had difficulty telling people. Um, on one occasion, me and my partner actually, we had an appointment up at clinic we actually left because we could see there was a kind of friend of a friend was sitting there and we were worried they would ask us he would ask us why we were there um i managed to tell a couple of close friends but i had difficulty telling my mom and so on and in the end she um actually i don't know if she suspected something was wrong but she phoned the place i was working i'd been working with Penson's, the social work department in edinburgh and she had the phone number for where i worked she actually phoned up eventually about six months after I was diagnosed and said, could I speak to David Law? And they said, it doesn't work here anymore. And in the end, so she confronted me with that. So I had to tell her. Mm. Um, but since then, I've kind of gone to the opposite extreme, having been dealing with this since 1997. And um, all my friends and family all know I'm quite open about it. Mm. Um, I'm on something like this. Uh, 
I went back to work about 10 years ago. I've been work, one of my jobs, and I have several jobs. One of my jobs is as a supermarket delivery driver. And uh, a few Christmases back, we were all in the pub before Christmas. And one of the other drivers, kind of like an abrasive character, was kind of quizzing me, what did you do before you, um, you know, before you worked here? Because you can see, you know, you get a whole variety of people working in the supermarket. But he asked me, what did you do before you started doing delivery driving? So I, in the end, um, it was leading on from a kind of question about hill walking and so on. And um, I actually said, well, I started doing the hill walking, doing the Monroes because um, I had a serious health condition, medical, uh, physical health condition. And I, in the end, I actually told them, I said that I was HIV positive for years since I was in my 20s, basically. So it kind of went woof over their heads. I don't know. I think don't think they really knew what to say. Um, yeah. But since then, I've been quite open about it um, uh, because a lot of people, I think, their picture of somebody with HIV is kind of Princess Diana, you know, shaking hands with a skeletal figure in about 1990. And really, yeah. you know, and it's not their fault because they probably, unless they happen to know somebody, they don't know how it's all moved on and mm -hmm. things and the drug treatments and so on. Um, so, yeah, so it was a kind of open various colleagues knew at work and then when COVID came along I actually made it kind of official because to begin with when COVID came along I was worried about it I'm not anymore but my employer made some arrangements so that I could kind of be on my own in the van and have it ready loaded when I came to work and so on so I didn't have mm -hmm. to be in contact with too many people so it's actually official it's now on my um on my uh, my employer knows all about it so I'm covered which is quite good because I'm now covered by the Equality Act 2010 and all these kind of things mm -hmm. so that's a positive thing, I think. That's good that they've been so accommodating. Um, I mean, talk about going from a sort of semi-veil of secrecy to complete openness, you know, and telling people you've gone one step further because you've written a book as well about your sort of... Is the book that you've written, is that like a sort of about your hill-walking interspersed with your HIV journey? Right, well, yes, pretty much. I mean, it's called Caleb's List. It came out almost kind of 10 years ago now. Um, and mm -hmm. it, um, it stemmed from, um, I kind of came across a, a, a list of hills. I, I was in my local library and I came across, it was just a book about the area really. And I'm very, we're very close to Arthur's seat here. You know, Edinburgh's kind of mountain and miniature in the center of the city. It's just a little hill about 800 mm -hmm. feet high. But I've been walking my dogs on there and I came across a little guidebook. I actually had this table in it of like 20 Scottish mountains that you can actually see from the summit of Arthur's Seat. Believe it or not, you can see Ben Lomond way over oh, where wow. you are and things. This is on a clear day, I'm saying, and you can see... You're joking. You can see you can, Ben yeah, Lomond yeah, yeah. from Edinburgh. So Bloody hell, that is unbelievable. Yeah, so this list I found anyway, I kind of took it, took it up to the top of Arthur's Seat and I kind of sat there with my dog and I had a look. I thought, yeah, I can pick up Ben Lomond. It's easy to see Ben Lady, the Oak Hills, the, the hills over in Clackmannanshire on the other side of the Firth of Forth and things. And it just kind of came to me. I thought, oh, this could be a kind of challenge for me because I've been kind of looking around. At that point, I was moving into voluntary work, going back to work, that kind of thing. And I thought, well, this could be a challenge. And I thought, mm -hmm. maybe I could climb these 20 hills kind of thing. Um, so I kind of took on that challenge almost as a way of kind of saying that proving to myself that HIV didn't run my life. So I took on the challenge and I was mm -hmm. able to climb the 20 hills and that's where the book came from, really. It started out as a very simple, it was just going to be a straightforward kind of guidebook, like get guidebooks to the Monroes. 
but it kind of grew arms and legs and I started to write a bit about myself. And um, I also wrote a bit about the Victorian mountaineer who'd made up this list. It turned out to be a really interesting character as well. So I included chapters about him and practical information about um, climbing these 20 hills. I even christened, you know how you get the Monroes and the Corbett's. I christened the 20 hills you can see from the summit of Arthur's seat, the Arthur's, and kind of tried to present it to people as a kind of easy <laughs> challenge thing. Um, so that, yeah, that was published by um, a publisher called Lewis Press back in 2012. I've since done a novel as well. And if there's any independent Scottish publishers out there, I've got another book that I'm kind of submitting to people as well, where I take on the challenge of kind of um, wild swimming a whole lot of high level, high altitude lochs in the Northwest Highlands of Scotland. So I better not give away too much about that. So I also, just to avoid any confusion, Same. I also I have a pen name, uh, Kellen McInnes, a suitably dramatic um, uh, Celtic sounding <laughs> name. So I can be found there just to, in case you go away and Google David Law and you can't find a thing about it. It's, it's all true. So smashing i'm going to give that a wee look i i would love to get into the the hill walking it's something that i see everybody doing and i think i'd love to do that but then sunday rolls around and i'm hung over and it's like nah it's mcdonald's for me today but i, I do I, I want to be that guy for god's sake pick a, a nice sunny day though and don't um and uh don't, don't do it in the rain and one rainy day and you'll get put off but yeah head, head for ben lomond your local hill yeah I'm abs I'm honestly stunned that you can see Ben Lomond all the way from Arthur's yeah. seat. That is insane. Because you can see Ben Lomond from my office, but my office is in Glasgow City Centre. So it's like it's 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 right there. But that that is that is nuts. I actually saw a thing someone yeah, yeah. saying that on a clear, clear day from a point in Airdrie, which is in North Lanarkshire, you could see Edinburgh Castle, which just blows my mind. Like, how is that possible? Right. I've never heard that one, but yeah, no. Ben Lomond looks like a little triangle on the on the horizon when you go up off the seat. So yeah, I'm going to go up off the seat. I'm going to take binoculars on a clear, clear day and just see if I can see it. Yeah, yeah. If you message me with your postal address, I will send you a complimentary copy of the book, and then you've got it, and you can pick the mountains out because it has a very handy kind of diagram at the back of it that makes life a lot easier. So yeah, I'll send you a copy of that after this. That is very, very kind of you. Actually, I will take you up on that because it sounds really interesting sort of overall. Um, now that kind of, <clears throat> you know, compare the landscape from 97, you know, from that first day when you were sort of really panicky and worried, and you fast forward to 2021 and this, you know, groundbreaking, world-changing, you know, as I've, I've said before, plate-shifting uh, medical treatment is now going to become available in Scotland being the first country in the world, which is really absolutely remarkable. How do you feel for for generations moving forward? Or, you know, people who might be about to undertake, you know, they might be at the start of that journey. Do you do you feel sort of happy for them? Do you feel a sense of relief? Like, how, how does that feel? Well, I wouldn't feel happy for them because it's still the best thing you can possibly do is to avoid ever getting HIV and so on. I don't really think you – I've talked about that. Um, with my partner and other people, I don't think you ever really get over an HIV diagnosis. I think it all, however, hangs your whole life. Um, so it's still much better if you can. I probably could have worded that a lot better, but no, no, yeah. it's fine, it's fine. But um, as I say, it's still much better if you can avoid get, getting the thing in the first yeah. place. I still think today it can be very traumatic for people. I mean, not um, 
I've found I've loads of experience of it, so I find it easy to tell people. But I think for young people, it's still very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, what I would say is, though, it's much better than in 1997 because today, you know, these drugs work. Somebody who's HIV positive today would expect to have the same life expectancy as um, any other kind of young person, really. Yeah. Um, what else? Um, and to answer the question, I mean, these new drugs are really incredible. Um, when I first started out in 1997, I think I was taking 24 tablets a day, right? Wow. You had to take about eight, roughly three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and evening. And there were huge things. It was a drug called ritonavir. It had unpleasant side effects. It used to give you upset stomach, diarrhea, tiredness, all that kind of thing. And there were huge capsules like horse pills and so on. And to go from that to today, when I, about a year or two ago, I actually changed. I'd still been on about six a day, and I changed to one of the new drugs, and it's just one tablet you take every day, and we couldn't have conceived of that back in 1997, that one day, because it amazed was a terrifying thing back in the 80s and 90s especially. It was kind of much more frightening than COVID today, I would say, more like kind of Ebola or something like that. And yeah. I kind of think that um, in the future you could take one tablet a day um, is amazing. But having said that, we were very, we were absolutely, we didn't mind taking the 24 tablets a day because you were so happy there was a cure for it kind of thing because a yeah. lot of people up to that time had died of it. So you were really grateful and so on. Um, and yeah, as you say, we now have, um, let's check its name, all these HIV drugs have names like kind of um, characters in a Netflix kind of <laughs> Lord of the Rings type show. But yeah, now we've got Cabotigravir, I think, which is, um, the first of a kind of new generation of drugs. And I think these are, I believe, are the kind of future of HIV treatment. So this is a drug that you just go every two months to your clinic, you receive an injection, and then you don't need to bother about any taking pills at all, which I mm -hmm. think would be great, particularly for young people, you know, because you don't want to, if you've got a wild social life, you're out clubbing and so on, you don't need, want to be worrying about where you're going to end up in the morning. Did you remember to bring the medication with you? all that kind of thing. Is it going to be awkward if you sneak off to the bathroom and, you know, with somebody you've just met to take your pill or whatever mm -hmm. thing. So I think the two monthly injection, I think it's, it's fantastic. It'd also be good if when the world kind of gets back to normal, hopefully, and people are traveling a lot more, there are still countries in the world where they don't like you to take HIV medication with you. I think Dubai is one of them. You might want to check that. Mm. Um, so, it would be much easier from that point of view as well. And I also think the injectable drug that lasts, it's a slow release thing that lasts for two months. Uh, I think they're using it as well as a PrEP drug. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And what they're doing in Scotland now is giving um, basically the same drugs I take to mainly kind of gay men who are HIV negative and it prevents, the drug prevents transmission of HIV. Mm -hmm. I think the idea is eventually if you can stamp out transmission, you could get rid of the illness completely. So the injectable one that lasts two months would be good from that point of view because you don't have to worry about taking a pill and so on. Yeah. So it's really quite amazing how far things have come in 40 years. If you think back at the first cases of HIV in the early 80s, they didn't even have a test for it and so on. So mm -hmm. really amazing progress. It is. And from a medical standpoint, it's it's fantastic. But also just from a social and sort of sociocultural standpoint that people are able to 
to just live a more normal life and not be, you know, have your life completely defined by taking these tablets every day. Like I've got a, an infection in my wisdom tooth, right? Like at my gum. So I've had to take um, antibiotics for three days just to kind of deal with it. And I am honestly acting as if I am the most like put upon guy in the world. I'm like, oh, <laughs> and they take three tablets a day for three days. And I've been bitching about it. <laughs> and then I have this conversation and I think, get a grip, you little spoiled idiot. Like just because you've got a sore mouth. And well, it's, it's, it's a bit of a soundbite, but I like to think of it if these kind of um, one-a-day HIV pills or the new one that you only get an injection every two months, basically that helps you forget about HIV and get on with the more fun, interesting things in life. So. Yeah, as is fair. And, you know, I've really enjoyed having like, this conversation with you and, and having spoken to, to Brian as well um, because other than – I know somebody um, who has – been impacted by HIV, um, people that you know, it was people in their family, and it was I think it was actually quite a prominent news story in the UK because they they were hounded by the press and stuff. But other than that, I've never spoken about it because it's just something that's one it's not really widely discussed, you know, across the board in just day to day life. But there's just no there's little to no information, so I'm hoping that people listening will also kind of share the I suppose the education that I've had as well and and the understanding of it because I, I had no understanding if you'd have quizzed me on it I would have been like I don't know I just have no answers and I think I'm for br general knowledge broadly speaking I kind of know stuff but it's just one of those things that I have no reference point no yeah just no information so yeah hopefully that's going to go some way so I mean that goes that thanks go to you for that for for coming and sharing your experience with me and, and answering my sort of nosy, naive questions. No, I, re I really enjoyed it. And I think yeah, I think it's quite common, really. A lot of people don't know about HIV because it's... Um, I think Terence Higgins Trust wanted to have a, want the government to have a publicity campaign to bring people's ideas up to date and say it's all, you know, it's all treatments and things and people are doing really well and it's not, but it's not like the era of Princess Diana and so on. But yeah... But no, it's been it's been really nice to talk to you this morning. So uh, I've enjoyed it too. Yeah, it's been absolutely magic. Well, thanks very much. And what are you up to for the rest of the day? Are you uh, heading out anyway? Is it sunny through there? Or is it absolutely beautiful? Yeah, it's a lovely sunny day. But unfortunately, I've got to go and um, deliver people's shopping at three o'clock this afternoon. So <laughs> that'll be the rest of my evening, basically. Ah, unlucky. At least you get to do it in the sunshine. Well, again, thanks very much for for joining me and and have a nice weekend then. Okay, thanks, Sean. Bye. Cheers, mate. Bye, bye. Last up, but by no means least, is Dr. Neka Nibicolo. She's a senior global medical director at Vive Healthcare. Vive Healthcare, they're a global specialist HIV company established in November 2009 by GlaxoSmithKline and Pfizer, and they're dedicated to advancing treatment and care for people living with HIV and for those who are at risk with being infected. Dr. Necker really is an expert and she's given TED Talks on the subject among countless other appearances and she explains perfectly just how much of an impact this new treatment will have on the lives of those who need it. So I went to university, I went to medical school in Papua New Guinea and then I came to the UK in 1993 with the intention of doing postgraduate kind of training in medicine. And I, I thought I'd do two things. I thought I would maybe do gastroenterology, but I really liked infectious diseases because Papua New Guinea is a tropical country, and so the majority of 
diseases that we see are infectious diseases. And so I, I guess in a way that, you know, because HIV is an infectious diseases, but infectious disease, sorry, but also because it encompasses the whole of medicine. For me, um, yeah, I don't know. Somehow it just seemed like a natural choice and I have never regretted it. I'll go straight into it. You know, with the, the advancement and development of new uh, treatments for, for people suffering uh, or living with HIV, how groundbreaking is that, you know, from a medical perspective that we're actually able to say, I say we as if like I had anything to do with it, but, you know, people in, in you know, your profession are able to, to make that sort of groundbreaking change, but also from a social standpoint, like how, how massive is it? Do you know, it, it is massive. I, I think people, when you, do, when you think about it, it's, it's, just, it's just another treatment for HIV, but it's so much more. Mm. Uh, and there are several reasons, and I'll, I'll, I'll go through wh why I think it's so important. I think the first thing is that for the first time, there is a treatment for HIV that doesn't involve taking a pill every day. And for some people, taking a pill every day is fine, doesn't, you know, it's absolutely fine. But for lots and lots of people living with HIV particularly, because I'm sure that you are aware of the fact that there's a lot of stigma still associated mm. with HIV. It's much better than it used to be, but it's still there. And for many people, having to put a pill in their mouth every day is a daily reminder of their HIV status. And because HIV for, some, for many people is associated with what we call self-stigma, so not just stigma that people experience from other people, but, but stigma that people experience from within that is related to living with HIV, uh, it, 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 it's just really, really traumatizing every time they put a pill in their mouth. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, and, and I think maybe may people don't know this, but when a person is taking antiretroviral therapy, oral HIV treatment, they have to take it as close to the same time of day as possible every day. And, you know, mm -hmm. when you think about how busy life is, that can be a real challenge. I mean, I have patients who, have, who set an alarm every, you know, every day at a particular point in time because their lives are so busy that otherwise they wouldn't remember. And, and so the, the, the fact that you have to remember, I think, creates a situation of anxiety in so many people. Oh, God, will I remember? I'm doing this tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to remember to take my pill. But also, did I actually take my pill? Because it mm -hmm. just gets... Up in, in a routine. So there is this underlying anxiety in a lot of people about uh, that surrounds pill taking. The other thing also is the issue of the fear of disclosure, which is again related to stigma. So a person who has to take a pill every day um, is worried if they have a box of pills at home and they share a flat, for example, that someone will find those pills. Mm. And Many of us who, um, you know, treat people living with HIV, many people living with HIV themselves uh, have had their HIV status unwittingly disclosed because of somebody finding their pills. And there have mm -hmm. been circumstances in which the person who's found their pills has then gone and told other people about this person's HIV status. Yeah. And so there is the issue of fear of disclosure as well. And having an injection that you take once uh, every two months means that you don't have a bottle of pills at home that you need to hide. You don't have this uh, fear about whether you ha have missed your last dose of medicine and you don't have this anxiety uh, that relates to having to put a pill in your mouth every day, and, a, mm -hmm. and which is a reminder of your HIV status. 
in, in the most abstract of ways, and I'm not being facetious here by mm. using my um, experience as a comparison, but so I recently had to take antibiotics for three days because my wisdom tooth was giving me a bit of grief um, and like I had an infection around the gum. I kept forgetting to take the, I had three tablets a day. That was it. I, I kept forgetting. I was also, I was embarrassed because I was out and I couldn't drink. And then my friends were like, why are you not drinking? And I'm saying, I'm on antibiotics. And I'm saying, why? And I'm like, my head is kind of going five steps down and thinking, they're going to think that I'm, I have like poor oral hygiene. And I was getting myself all worked up about it. So I can't even imagine with everything that you've kind of just listed that, um, someone, you know, someone sort of dealing with that would would have to deal with. It, it makes complete sense as well with the self stigma. Um, just yeah. being able to 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 go and live their life. So it has like, it feels to me as if it's like medicinally groundbreaking. Because I suppose is it fair to say then that this could then be the gateway to to further improvements across the board for like other illnesses and stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and and actually, you know, I think you raise a, a good point. And thanks for giving the comparison about a course of antibiotics. Because as you say, that's just a, for a short period of time. Imagine having to do that every day for the rest yeah. of your life. Sometimes mm. taking medicine twice a day, sometimes three times a day. It's, that's hard. Um, but yes, it, it is. Uh, I mean, there are actually instances where long-acting medicines for other conditions are just routine. And this is the other reason that this is so groundbreaking. It gives people choice because not everybody will want an injection, but not everybody wants oral treatment. So now there is another kind of treatment that people can, can say, oh, well, actually, I, the, the, the oral treatment doesn't suit me. I'd rather the injection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we think about the, contraceptive, uh, the contraceptives, for example. You know, one, the one reason that contraceptives are so successful is that people who take contraception have so many choices. You have a pill, you have an implant, you have an injection, um, you know, and, and so that means that for yeah. every situation that, that a woman is in her life, she can choose a method of contraception to suit her. And, you know, the, the issue with injections is not just about having an injection forever. You know, so you're a journalist, Yeah. So if you were going to a country that was difficult, for example, you know, that it would be hard for you to take your, you know, there are some countries where it's illegal to be HIV positive. So, you, you know, you, some people are frightened that if they're traveling, their pills might be discovered. Yeah. Um, or if you're traveling for a, a, a period of time and, and you're, you have so many things to do in a different country, you don't want to take tablets every day, then you could for a short period of time decide, well, I'm just going to have an injection while I'm away. Mm. And then when I come back, I can go back to taking my pills. So it's not all it's not all just about the stigma associated with HIV. It's also about having a, a method of HIV treatment that suits you for the, the, the periods of your life, uh, you know, for the changing periods of your life, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that I had never even thought of that about removing certain barriers because that's the thing, like, over this sort of wee journey that I've had speaking to people who've, who've been living with it and impacted by it, there are so many sort of seemingly innocuous things that would never have occurred to me because, and I've said this, I've probably never thought about HIV. It's To me, it was always, growing up, it was something that existed in Africa and it was something that was like, a, you know, obviously I'm saying Africa as if it's a country, I'm aware it is the an enormous continent, but it was something that existed there and it was like a, a third world issue and I've now 
obviously ha- growing up, you know, you kind of learn. But I've realized now that it's something that is probably far more prevalent than, I, than I've even come close to realizing. But the, the criminality in, in certain countries, like, what the hell is that? <laughs> What's that all about? Like, that's insane. It is. It is. And um, what are the reasons? Oh, gosh. Do you know, so a lot of it, oh, I don't know. Where do you even start? Okay. Yeah. So I think a lot of it relates to how people catch HIV, for example. You know, it's a, it's a sexually transmitted infection. There, uh-huh. is also, there are all sorts of stigmas about uh, sexually transmitted infections. People have these preconceptions about the fact that so, you know, people have think that oh, only people who have lots and lots of partners catch HIV. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's something that you bring on yourself. So, so there's that. Um, in the West, the majority of people, yes, yeah, the majority of people who live with HIV are men who have sex with men. And in many countries, it's illegal to be gay. So um, there's criminalization that relates to your sexuality there's criminalization with regard to just the fact that it is transmissible. So, and people often don't understand how it's transmitted. So there are lots of myths about how it's transmitted. You know, people think you can transmit it through saliva, through kissing, through spitting. There are places where if, if, a, a, per, if, a, if a person living with HIV spits at someone else for whatever reason, if you're in a fight, I mean, people, people have fights, people do all sorts of things. Yeah. A, spit, a person living with HIV who spits at someone else is not going to transmit HIV that way. But people um, in some countries would be sent to prison for that because they're living with HIV and, mm. oh, they've potentially put this person that they spat at at risk when there is absolutely no risk of transmitting HIV in that way. So, I mean, I, I, it, just, I, I, it just comes down, I think, a lot to, to the judgments that people in society and then subsequently governments mm-hmm. place on people. Because remember, governments are made up of people, yeah. and it's the prejudices of people that then, you know, kind of go up the chain to become the prejudices of governments. And, you know, governments should be protecting the people who live um, within their borders. They shouldn't be criminalising them for not having done anything wrong. Seems, you know, why is it a crime to be living with HIV? Yeah, seems to be a... Uh, a slim chance of governments across the board actually going that way but um, that's a, another mm-hmm. conversation I suppose um, for you personally did you seek out to to sort of work in this field um, and work like specifically around HIV or is it something that just kind of happened as a result of your career trajectory? Yeah that's a, that's a good question so in the UK most um, HIV physicians are also sexual health physicians so Uh, STD physicians. And I am fascinated by people's stories. Um, And so I started out, um, so primarily I wanted to do HIV. You know, when I decided that I wanted to do infectious diseases, I wanted to do HIV because to me, HIV is the most interesting of infectious diseases. That's Mm -hmm. my personal opinion. Um, But as I said, uh, when you train in HIV in the UK, you either train specifically in infectious diseases, so that's other infectious diseases and HIV or sexual health and HIV. And I chose to do it through sexual health and HIV. And just, and it, and it was the best choice, I, career choice I ever made. You know, the privilege to hear, and, and I know that the word privilege is used 
really, really often and I think sometimes misused, but I mean it genuinely. To hear people tell you about things that they would never tell anybody else, to, for them to trust you with, with things about themselves that they, they can't tell any, anybody else. Uh, it, it, I don't know, it, it does something. And, you know, the devastation that someone you give an HIV diagnosis to, the devastation on their face, because maybe they don't really know anything about HIV and all they do know is that they're going to die. And for you mm. to be able to say to them, you're not going to die. You, we can start you on treatment straight away and you will have a normal life expectancy and you can have children if you want to have children and you can be no different to anybody else. And the things that you plan to do before you learned your diagnosis, you, sh you will still be able to do is, is just something. And now to be able to answer all my patients, you know, over many years who've said to me, I hate taking pills. Why isn't there an injection? And for me to now be able to say, well, there is an injection now. Mm. And this is just about making the lives of people with HIV be the same as the lives of people without HIV. That's what this is about. Mm -hmm. You can see, I mean, this is an audio format podcast, but I can see like the genuine happiness on your face when you're describing that, which is nice. Um, it, it must be, yeah, it must be an incredible feeling to to be able to do that. I suppose to it is a, a blessing for for the the world in general. I suppose humanity, if you want to say that, that there are people like you who are so interested from a scientific perspective, but also from a sort of I would say humanitarian, because you know, as it's 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 universe shifting like for people do do what do you foresee or do you foresee any further changes or developments because i don't imagine that sort of progress would just stop at this point i feel like this is you all just getting started yeah no you're so right so this is the first injectable uh, and and the thing specifically that's important about this injection so there are other hiv injection treatments but they're not complete treatments so with the other injection treatments, you have to have tablets as well. Mm -hmm. But this is HIV treatment packaged in, in these injections that is a complete treatment. Um, but the de So the developments will happen with, with different medicines, but also with different modes of delivery. So, there, so this is a two-monthly injection, mm -hmm. but there are um, st studies now looking into extending the, the length between injections. Uh, studies looking into using different kinds of ways to deliver uh, treatments, you know, things like implants and so on. You know, so you, when you think about what's available for contraception, hopefully what will happen with HIV is that the, the, the choice will widen mm -hmm. so that somewhere in all the, the treatments that are available, everyone will be able to say, well, this is the treatment for me. Mm -hmm. It's great. It's amazing the, with you seeing with the... Um the increase in the the, num the number of possibilities and for that to, to allow everybody has the right to live a life the same as a quote-unquote normal or healthy uh, sort of bog-standard mm -hmm. healthy person does. Am I right in saying that there is a... a I may be mistaken here, and I'm, I'm kind of reluctant now to, to, no, to say on. it. No. With, with cancer treatment, is 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 that something that it, that is sort of going to be possible as well, or something you'd be working on? Am I right in saying that? So, um, not, not so not specific. You mean our company, or so with mean? with the treatment? Sorry, that that's been worked on just now. 
um, yeah. for HIV. Can that be? Is there a sort of cross pollination? I'm kind of oh, getting my words mixed up. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I think I understand. Okay, no. So these medicines are completely to treat HIV. Right. Okay. So they they, they don't treat anything else but HIV. But one thing that I will say about cancer is you may you may or may not know that there are some kinds of cancer that mm-hmm. are associated with HIV that people with HIV right, are okay. more likely to get. But we know that a person on successful treatment, whether this is with oral treatment or with injectable, you know, any any treatments that control the, vi- the virus mm-hmm. mean that the immune system can recover. And a lot of the, the cancers that are associated with, with HIV, particularly the, the cancers that we used to see early on when we didn't have effective treatment, um, happen because the immune system is so suppressed. But when you have effective treatment, regardless of what form that effective treatment takes, then the risk of developing cancers is much lower. But so, so these treatments prevent those kinds of cancer right, okay, yeah. because they suppress, they make the immune system function better, but they don't in themselves treat cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think over like the course of these these three conversations that I've had, like I've I've said, I've learned a lot. Like I feel as if I've sort of had my eyes open. Um, I certainly have a lot of respect, a lot of sympathy for people kind of going through it and. You know, I hope, fortunately for me, I'll never truly understand that. And, you know, that that would then mean that I was a very lucky guy. But I imagine there are people, or there will be people who are listening to this, who maybe are at the start of that journey for themselves. They may be in the middle of it. What advice or what words would you give to them in order to sort of, you know, bring them into the actual reality? Because your head can be a mad place when you're panicking. Yeah, no, agree. So I think I'd say a few things. The first is you are still you. Um, just because you have HIV does not mean that your life needs to change. Yes, you will need to take medicine. And for the moment, it will be for the rest of your life because there is no cure. But the vast majority of people who are on treatment are well, remain well, will live. I mean, I have patients in my in their 80s. <laughs> So we'll live a long and good and healthy life. If you are on treatment and your treatment's working properly and your viral load is undetectable, which means that the amount of virus in your blood is so is made so low, the level of virus is so low that we can't detect it in your blood anymore, you cannot transmit HIV to your sexual partners. It is impossible to transmit HIV to your sexual partners as long as your viral load is suppressed. So you don't have to, because that's something that people living with HIV worry about. Mm-hmm. What about how, you know, what if I give someone HIV the way someone gave it to me? But one of the really fantastic things about treatment, apart from the fact that it prolongs life, is that it stops you from being infectious. So you can't, you don't have to worry about transmitting HIV. And this is something I want to say to people who don't have HIV. You have nothing, I mean, you, you have nothing to fear anyway from a person living with HIV, but you do not have to, to be worried if you have a partner, a sexual partner who is living with HIV, if they're on treatment and they have an undetectable viral load, you can't catch HIV from them. Mothers can't transmit HIV to their babies um, uh, if, they are, if they have an undetectable viral load uh, when they deliver. So they can have a normal delivery and not transmit HIV to their babies. So your life does not have to be different. Yeah, that's incredible um, hearing it like that. It's... Um... Yeah, it is no longer the uh, the immediate death sentence that it sort of sadly used to be. 
Uh, thanks, I suppose, thanks to inquisitive and genius minds like yours, <laughs> but the, the, the world is now looking that way. Well, not so much mine, but... Uh, yeah, but, yeah, in general. <laughs> others, others. Uh, no, well, thank you so much for, for taking this time out to come and answer these questions. I think it's bookended the um, this, this episode perfectly, uh, and I hope that people have enjoyed it. So, yeah, thank you very much. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I hope you found that informative and enjoyable because I did for the whole time that I was making it. Thank you for listening and thank you to Brian, David and Dr Necker for being so generous with their time and with what they shared with me. Cheers. Cheers.